I think this is on. There we go. We're in Romans chapter 7, and uh, I had to watch online last week, and I saw that you all stood up and read with me, with uh, Lee. So stand up with me. Get to uh, Romans chapter 7 with me, and let's read the first part of that chapter together. Verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brother knew also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the law. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except for the law, but I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. And he ends this chapter in verse 24 and 25. O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Well, before I get started, some of you have been praying for me, and I'm just going to take a minute to say um, about three weeks ago, as I was walking, I tripped, fell, hit right here on the side of my head, broke my cheekbone, and uh, permanently damaged my optic nerve in the right eye. Nothing on the outside was uh, looked damaged or was damaged. The doctor, uh, and uh, I could only see black and a little bit of grays. The doctor said, you've permanently damaged your optic nerve and broken that cheekbone. Uh, I went in um, a week later. They put me on some steroids and anti-inflammatories. I went in a week later with about 60% sight in that eye. People have been praying for me. Um, I think I'm at about 80 to 90% sight in that eye. God is good. And I go back... um, in a month for him to take a look at that, and 
I told everybody, I came to, I'm at peace with just one eye. When you get this old, there's nothing you can't do with just one eye. You know? So uh, continue to pray. The Lord, is, the Lord is good. Well, we're in, chap- in, we're in chapter 7, but I want to kind of catch up. In chapter 6, Pastor Lee told us that we can reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin because we're alive to God in Jesus. All we have to do is reckon, and the inevitable result is our freedom from sin. We've been singing about it. Did you recognize that as we sang this morning? We're claiming a promise from God himself. We're accepting something as absolute certain, placing our trust and our confidence in God's promises, in God's word. You know, you can't reckon something unless it's already true. Jesus has done his work, the hard part. His obedience to the Father, his death, his suffering on the cross. The Holy Spirit has done his work, the resurrection of our Savior. When we reckon, we're doing our work, placing our trust and confidence in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus said it another way in John chapter 6. He said to them, what sh- oh, they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And I love this answer. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God for you, he said, that you believe in him whom he sent. In other words, that we reckon. We reckon is our, that's our work to believe. As an inevitable result, the power that raised Jesus from the grave will give us the will and the strength to obey and to do what God is leading. We're freed from sin by Jesus living in us. But this morning as we study Romans chapter 7, we'll also learn that in our own strength we will fail. We will never overcome temptation by our willpower alone. Well, let's look at verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion or rules over a man as long as he lives? Now, the principle that Paul is laying down is that the law imposes a lifelong obligation to its subjects. Uh, but the opposite is also true then, that the law has authority over a person only for his lifetime. Peter calls the law a yoke, a burden on our back. In Acts chapter 15, he's speaking and he says, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? In verse 1, Paul starts speaking to the Jewish brethren in Rome, those who already know the law. They've experienced firsthand the struggle of trying to live up to the rules that God set out in his law. Paul begins with a practical example of the law and its constraints and obligations. He uses the universal relationship of marriage with its attachments, legal bonds, between a man and a woman. But I want to bring up what Dr. J. Vernon McGee says at this point. He says, now, 
Paul will give an illustration that I think is a great one. Unfortunately, folk try to draw from it rules for marriage and divorce. But Paul is not talking about marriage and divorce here. Rather, he's illustrating by a well-established and stated law that a wife is bound to a living husband and that death frees her from the status of wife. Verse 2, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. You see, the law is like marriage. You can't just walk away from it. You're bound to the law until death do you part. Finishing verse 2. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. Well, strictly speaking, by the law, unless he dies, this woman is a lawbreaker. She's made a legal contract and has broken it. She's broken the law. Finishing verse 3. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Well, Paul is speaking about the law, God's law, found in the Old Testament. This law is perfect. It's from God. It's like being married to the perfect man. Many of you women have kind of dreamed about this. He buys you a beautiful home. He brings you breakfast in bed. He takes you to beautiful, fabulous places. And this might seem really great for a while until the honeymoon ends and he begins to point out the several places where you come up short. You've gained a little weight. There's dust on the mantle. Mr. Perfect becomes Mr. Pest. And you're bound to him. Even if you take him to court, the judge finds him perfect. Your only way out is for Mr. Perfect to die. But he's too healthy. Your poisons aren't strong enough. He might get sick, but nothing more. You see, trying to live with legalism, with the law, is like being married to Mr. Perfect. But Paul found another solution to our problem. He told us in chapter 6, we died with Christ. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. If you're dead, then you are free. Whatever authority the law continues to exercise over anyone, for us believers, those of us who have died in Christ, that power has been repealed. It's been annulled. The law has no jurisdiction over a dead man. Death destroys its hold on us. Let me show you. What if I was robbing a bank and in the middle of my robbery, I died of a heart attack? Would the cops still cuff me and book me? I don't think so. You see, the law doesn't care about a corpse. I'm free from the law. And so are you if you died with Christ. Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to Him, to Jesus who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. 
Because I died to the law, I am free to marry another, to marry Jesus, to be his bride. The law's demands are terminated. You see, the law is a factory. It, it demands skill and performance and production, and it never lets up. But grace, grace is a garden where we are cultivated, cared for, nurtured, and cherished. I was in high school, but I'll never forget one afternoon, a bunch of us kids were at Mr. Buxman's house on, out on his ranch. And he had this peach orchard. The tree closest to the house was the family tree. So he took us out to this family tree in his orchard. He picked this beautiful, ripe peach, and he took a bite out of it, and you could see the juice dribbling down, and he swooned over its precious, delicious taste. And you know, that's how God looks at you and me. We're a garden. Verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. I'm going back to Dr. McGee again to give us some insight here. He says, Face this squarely, my friend. Are you able in your own strength to keep the law? The law was a straitjacket put on the flesh to control it. The flesh rebelled and chafed under the irksome restraint of the law. The flesh had no capacity or desire to follow the injunctions of the law. The flesh broke out of the restraint imposed by law and therefore brought down the irrevocable penalty for breaking the law, which is death. You see, the warning don't to a small child may turn out to call rebellion up that he hadn't even thought of yet. A sure way to lose blossoms in your garden is put up a sign. Don't pick the flowers. Because you've heard it said, rules are what? Made to be broken. All that rules do is provide a, to us sinners a target. To follow God, we need more than an outward standard. We need an inward Holy Spirit. When I first came to Jesus as a 17-year-old, I learned that we're like a submarine. The outside pressures of the law, the world, Satan, and temptation would crush us if we weren't filled full on the inside with God's Holy Spirit. This is our first point in the bulletin. We obey God from an inner conviction, not the outer pressure of guilt or obligation. Paul moves on in verse 6. Death and the cross changes everything. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. You see, the letter, the law, shows us God's standard, His target for righteousness. But it didn't provide the ability to hit the bullseye. As verse 6 tells us, we must walk 
in the newness of the Spirit. Now Paul in this chapter is going to admit his failures and his spiritual fiascos. But right now and right here, he's recognizing and he's declaring the truth of it all. Our second point, in Christ we are free. We're delivered from sin and the law. Paul is emphasizing the truth made in chapter 6. Death ends all obligations. Death breaks us free. You were saved by faith. Live by faith. Death with Christ brought an end, brought an end to the sway of the law over those who belong to Him. And the good news just keeps getting better. Belonging to Christ involves sharing not only in His death, but also in His life, in His resurrection. You see, we're dead to the power or hold that sin has over us, but we're not just lying there dead. We're infused with the life and the power of Jesus that it resurrected Him from the grave. I like how Paul proclaimed to the Philippians, chapter 3, he said, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Dr. Gabeline, one of my favorite um, authors, he points out how this might look. He says, We are married, as it were, to the risen Lord with a view to bearing fruit to God. He says, perhaps an analogy is intended here. As marriage produces offspring, so the believer's union with Christ results in spiritual fruit. Just as Jesus pointed out in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, he said. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But don't forget, Jesus says, Without me, you can do nothing. This brings us back to the last part of verse 6. So that we should, I want to underline the word should, serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Look at the back of your bulletin, number 3. Paul teaches here that our motivation for obeying is different. We do not mechanically obey a set of rules, but we lovingly, from the heart, obey the Spirit of God who fulfills the righteousness of the law in us. And our fourth point, our obedience to God is not that of a slave fearing a master, but of a bride lovingly pleasing her bridegroom, or even a child responding to a loving father. But we have to look back, as I said, and see the should in the last part of verse 6. That we should serve in the newness of the Spirit. This is the should and the can do given to us by God's Spirit. But as we're going to see from Paul's own experience when we get down to verse 15, Knowing and doing are two totally different things. The should and the could are always determined by our reliance and relationship on God's Holy Spirit. 
In other words, it only works when we reckon, when we believe. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. You see, the law is a mirror to show us our flaws and our ugliness. Without seeing God's standard, Paul would never have known how far short he had fallen. Point five in our bulletin, Paul learned from the law, but he didn't live by the law. You see, sin is a spiritual concept. It's not a moral concept. Sin is what God says about our values, our attitudes, and our behavior. Paul says here in verse 7, I would not have known sin except through the law. Because of the law, God, uh, Paul not only recognizes his sin, but he's forced to recognize his guilt because law tells God's standard. The law reveals to us that we're liable, we're accountable to our Creator for our sin. Many atheists reject the existence of God just for this reason. Mankind doesn't want this obligation. They want to be free from God. One atheist stated it this way, Emancipate yourself, he said, from the idea of a celestial dictatorship. That's how he sees God. And you've taken the first step to becoming free. It's the law that reveals God's divine standard and reveals a bit of God Himself. Paul told us back in chapter 3, everyone has sinned, for we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Verse 8 says, But sin, taking opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. When I didn't know what the law was, I could do what I thought was right. That's what he's saying. But it's our sin nature, always ready to choose gossip, anger, or lust. Verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Because the law, the law is a killjoy. I like what Sandy Adams says about this. He says, if you want to take the fun out of reading your Bible, adopt a rigid reading plan. To lose the joy of giving, make it mandatory. Want to turn coming to church into a drag? Make it an obligation, not an opportunity. Legalism is lethal. It's a joy killer. Remember as kids, when we worked for hours in the woods behind the house, raking the ground, digging the dirt, piling the logs, and hammering the unused wood to build our fort? Remember that? But ask us to rake the leaves in the yard before we went to play was like pulling teeth. When the law demands us to serve, serving loses its joy. Verse 12, Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just 
and good. You see, the law isn't the problem. The law is good. It reveals God's will. We're the problem. Well, what about Paul? Remember, he was a Pharisee. There was a time when he found himself motivated by his pride, convinced that he was able to please God, at least better than the struggling multitudes that he looked down on. Paul said in Acts chapter 26, according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Paul was caught up in the never-ending endeavor to please God by keeping the law. Before Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was blinded by his pride, and he thought himself faultless, blameless. He was a Pharisee. In Philippians 3, he tells the Philippians, concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. Verse 13, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. You see, Paul's Damascus Road experience completely changed his point of view. Jesus drove him to his knees. He humbled him with truth. Jesus broke his pride and his self-righteousness. Paul had proven to, him, to himself that he was perfect, at least more righteous than other men. But the light that blinded his eyes that day on the road opened his heart to see how far from perfect the law demanded. God's grace opened Paul's spiritual eyes to see his true condition. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Can you see Paul in this song? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." You see, the law led Paul to pride. Then Paul's prideful, self-righteous eyes were opened. It was grace that penetrated that Pharisee facade, the veneer of hypocrisy. The law had always shown Paul how much better he was than others. Paul could have said to anyone, anything you can do, I can do better. But grace, <coughs> grace turned that right side up. Grace destroys my pride. It humbles me before a holy, loving God. Why? Because it only saves sinners. It saved a wretch like me. Amen? God's grace forgives. It redeems. And the law is satisfied. And now the Son, the Son of God, is the focus of my life. It's all about Jesus. Number six, on the bulletin. You see, I progress as a Christian not by fighting with my sin, but by following the Son, the Son of God.
Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul looks back to a time that he lived as a carnal believer. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the first the chapters 2 and 3, he says there are basically three types of people. The natural man is what we all were before we were saved. The spiritual man is the one who is saved and who walks in the newness of the Spirit. The carnal man is born again, but lives in the energy of the flesh. In this last section, verses 15 through 25, Paul relates the times he tried to serve God by obeying the law, but finds himself derailed by the operation of sin within himself. This is a picture of each of us as we attempt to please and serve the Lord in our own strength and abilities. Paul exposes his times of failure and distress to help us find victory. So listen carefully. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will, will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. Now I think... Dr. McGee, again, is probably correct when he describes this experience that Paul relates in verses 15 through 25. He tells us, Paul is speaking of his own experience in this section. Apparently, there were three periods in his life. First, he was a proud Pharisee. Under the Mosaic law, kidding himself by bringing the sacrifices, doing other things which he thought would make him right with God, but the law was condemning him all the time. Then, the second period began when he met Christ on the Damascus Road. This proud young Pharisee turned to Christ as his Savior, but he still felt he could live the Christian life. His new nature said, I am now going to live for God. Remember when you said that? But he failed. And he was in the arena of struggle and failure for a time. You see, McGee says, I don't know how long it lasted, but probably it wasn't long. Then there came a day when there was victory. But Paul didn't win the victory on his own. Christ did it. Paul learned that it was a matter of yielding, presenting himself and letting the Spirit of God live the Christian life through him. This can describe you and me. We get up in the morning and we begin our routine without a focus on the Lord. I like what my buddy Rich Hansen has to say. He says, I try to start each day with, Good morning, Lord. Rich here, reporting for duty. I like that. Even as believers, we are always defeated by the flesh unless we purposefully focus our minds on Jesus. Paul is saying, yes, I'm saved, but I'm miserable in my carnality when I'm lukewarm for Jesus. Verse 17, he goes on, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Paul is recognizing here what we call the original sin. The sin that is handed down from Adam. That we are born sinners. We are innocent until our minds and hearts mature to the ability to understand the saving power of Jesus and his death and resurrection. It's been said, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin, why? Because we're sinners. Finishing verse 18, Paul cries out, For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it. But sin dwells in me. You see, this old nature, this sin nature, has been nailed to the cross. He's dead. She's dead. She keeps reaching up out of the grave saying, don't forget me. And it's when you recognize that old nature, that sin that dwells within us. It's this natural bent to sin that we fight every day. It makes us wonder at times if we're even saved. Do you ever wonder? Well, here's how to differentiate between a pig and a prodigal. Between an unbeliever and if you're a carnal Christian. You take the pig out of the pig pen, you wash him in bubble bath, spray him with cologne, put a ribbon on his tail, a bow on his Uh, in his hair and watch what happens the first time he sees the mud again. The pig will wallow in it with joy. But the prodigal, on the other hand, although he might foolishly find himself in the mud from time to time, will not be comfortable there. Eventually, he'll come to his senses. That's what it says in the story of the prodigal son. I came to my senses, he said. And he'll say, get me out of here. I hate this stuff. And that's exactly where Paul comes to in verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law in my mind and bringing me into captivity (coughs) to the law of sin, which is in my members. So in my mind, I want to follow the law of God. I want to walk in His ways and keep His commandments. That's truly my determination and my mindset. But my body, my old nature, rebels. My eyes are prone toward lusting. My ears strain to readily blame others. My tongue wags to even not tell the truth. There's a war going on. How can I get victory? And finally, Paul asks the right question in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. You see, he once was blameless. Remember that? 
And now, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul shouts out, Who will deliver me? Jesus. What I have to do is reckon. I have to believe. I have to focus on Him and rely on Jesus. But you know, it seems so simple, doesn't it? Too simple. You see, it's like when your favorite uncle dies and he leaves you with his beautiful T-Bird convertible. You love that car, so you push it everywhere. You push it to the store and you put groceries in it and you push it home. You put your family in it. You push it through the Starbucks drive through They order their favorite drinks. You jump in and you finish your mocha. Then you jump out and you push everybody home. What fun. You love that car. Well, after a few weeks, the new gift was becoming a little tiresome. Then you opened the owner's manual you found in the glove box. And you read about the ignition key. It seems so simple. Too simple. Do you reckon it will work? Well, I want you to look at the last two lines of verse 25. I struggled with these two lines until I was almost done finishing my study. And then I realized... So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. You see, in in chapter 12, he says, renew your mind. You see, it's our mind that calls up the old nature. It's our mind that focuses on Jesus. So with the mind, I serve, I myself. See, it's not just me, it's me, myself. I serve the law of God, yes, Reckon with my mind right now. Read life's owner's manual, God's Word. I read it and I believe. Believing what God can do. Believing what He's already done. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Don't let my flesh, my pride say, I can do it myself, my way. Use the key. Start the engine. Let the power of the Holy Spirit take over. It worked for Paul. He finally realized he could get in the car, sit next to Jesus, and rest in comfort with the wind blowing through his hair. Maybe. Maybe even let Jesus drive. Worship team, come on up. Let me finish with a poem about how God has provided everything we need. Run, run, and do the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for what You've done. Thank You that You have died and that by faith I am forgiven.
My sins no longer exist. They're buried in the deepest sea. Father, when you look at me, you see only Jesus washed whiter than snow. Lord, thank you that we can call on you at any time that we don't have to struggle when we belong to you. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing a worship song with us. glad you're here this morning. If you'd like to pray with someone, we have some of our elders up front. Perhaps you're struggling with that old man and we can pray with you about that. Maybe you haven't met the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're not free or struggling and he can free you from uh, all the struggles. He'll walk with you through them. God bless you. Have a good day.